You're listening to Once, episode 250, Last Rites. Welcome back to another episode of Once, the unofficial podcast for ABC's TV show, Once Upon a Time. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. I'm Jeremy Laughlin. And I'm Jacqueline. We have watched and rewatched this episode, Last Rites, and we are ready to dig into this. This is the penultimate episode of this season. We have the two-hour season finale. There are two different titles for the upcoming episodes, but it's a two-hour season finale. So make sure that you set your DVR or get ready to watch an hour earlier. It starts at 7 or 6 central. So we are really looking forward to that. It will, I'm going to guess it's another two-part mini-sode or mini-sort of thing. You know, a storyline across two episodes, kind of like they've been doing at the end of the last couple seasons. In which Hook and Emma battle... Little yard gnomes brought to life by a curse that are trying to destroy the happiness brought by building a white picket fence. And speaking of that white picket fence, let's cross it and start talking about this episode. Okay. It starts out with the toll bridge and Hades on that bridge and getting to see Arthur right there. I'm glad that in all of this, we haven't completely forgotten. You didn't say the thing? Like... We'll start with the past, and it just hit me. There's no flashing back in this episode. It's not the first episode with no flashbacks. Oh, Technically, the way Daniel and I finally kind of hashed this out today was really the first episode without flashbacks is 208 into the deep. You can kind of make a case maybe for 201 broken, but it seems a little more like a flash forward when you think about the rate at which pigeons fly. Right. <laughs> so it's probably it's uh, 208 is the first one really wow so instead of starting at the past we'll then start at the troll 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 i'm kind of trying to say it with and without the, the r at the same time the troll bridge yes <laughs> it's nice to see arthur again and know that he's not this character that's been moved to forgotten character island as so many other characters have been moved there that i've lost track of how many characters are there mm -hmm. but we do get to see his resolution really in this episode it's not like the focus of this but it's it is answering one of those unanswered questions and hades referred to himself as the god of death yeah they gotta stop that <laughs> i i think i've said this a couple times now but he's not He's just the Lord of the Underworld. He's God of the Underworld. I think it's, for the show, sexier for them to call him the God of Death because it makes it sound more important that the heroes have to go up against, you know, the God of Death. But mm, no, not, not so much. Well, yeah, because they can't resist talking about it as hell and the devil, even though they have to quickly contradict it every single time. They still put the lines in because they just want to say it so bad. And, and it may be one of those things that they're not using necessarily the greek mythology label of god of death but they're using the label of okay hades is a god in this story and he's the ruler of the underworld which is where people go when they die so it's like he's the god of death sure so you can arrive to it logically like that but if you slap on the greek mythological label on him 
Yeah, Jacqueline's got problems. I feel like the Grim Reaper dude in the boat at the beginning or the end of the last story arc might have had something to say about that if he ever spoke, but he was never seen again. You mean Karen? Sure. <laughs> the fa- the ferryman? Yeah. What happened to him? Oh, wait, never mind. He fell into the River of Lost Souls, I'm sure. His job is just to pilot people oh. from the land of the living to the land of the dead. Does he that, get- that's actually pretty consistent with mythology. I'm okay there. Okay. Well, all right then. I'm assuming he met Arthur because Hades killed Arthur quite quickly. He did, with quite the uh, crunching of bone. I'm not quite sure why. Because Hades says something like, I'm, I was also destined to rule a kingdom and I need your help with that. And then he very quickly kills Arthur, which in turn helps defeat Hades later in the episode. This is true. Yeah. Watching it the first time, I assumed that he was supposed to do something in the underworld or something. But yes, this seems like something I don't know. I think one way that we could explain that is that Hades put into motion what would get Zelina on his side and what would bring all of the heroes to come attacking Hades so that he would get to put on this demonstration of power. I think that's what he was thinking of when he said, I need your help. Because if it wasn't for a dead Arthur on the bridge, Emma wouldn't be all like, Hades did this. (laughs) We have to go after him. We have to stop him. In a sense, they would, but a dead body is kind of proof. So you think that he wanted to incite a battle so that he could kill the heroes and it would look to Zelina like he had no choice. Exactly. Well, that makes sense. That actually does. <laughs> <laughs> However, there were some negative feelings about his death. Um, for example, Science versus Magic wrote that I feel cheated by Arthur's death. We spent all of season 5A running around with Arthur, hating Arthur, wanting Merida to punch Arthur right in his smug face. After all of that, there's no moment of satisfaction. His demise was lightning quick, came at another villain's hands, and he actually seemed content down in the underworld. A lot of setup and no payoff. Well, I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that that last phrase, um, yeah, that's that's not so uncommon. <laughs> uh, yeah, in, especially in this show. <laughs> that's kind of what I meant. <laughs> like, uh, Not to put too fine a point on it, but yeah. <laughs> it, it's a show with a lot of setups and very little payoff. I, I mean, I'll go ahead and say it now. Throughout this episode, I just found myself thinking I would wait a full calendar year and get only 11 episodes just to have Adam and Eddie and Jane Espenson and maybe one other seasoned veteran writer write every single episode with a full story arc plan with every beat laid out before they write any episodes. (laughs) I don't know what their process is. I do know that there are so many writers. And it just, for some reason with this show, you really feel it. I think that this particular episode, although, yeah, there were things that kind of had to be squeezed in a little bit. I do think this was one of the really good episodes of this season. I actually really enjoyed it. It's one of the weird ones where I liked it better. actually liked it a lot first run and then, well, within reason. But then upon reviewing, found some bigger problems than I noticed in the beginning. And this episode, by the way, was written by Jerome Schwartz, and he's done some other good episodes too he has it's true however only 
in seasons four and five. I think he came over from Wonderland, actually. I don't know that the episode itself is bad. This is definitely, personally, my least favorite of the arc. I do think there are some good moments embedded within, but I think the larger problem is there isn't a whole lot of payoff with the arc itself, especially with Hades. And we're going to talk a lot about this as this episode continues, but I feel pretty let down with how they resolved Hades in the end. And then, of course, the big moment of Robin's death that we'll get to a little bit later. I think there is a different way to handle this than they handled in the episode. Yes. A a big part of payoff comes from expectations that have been set. And that's kind of a theme that I've brought up probably every story arc. People may be getting tired of hearing me say it, but there's, there's a lot that happens during the beginning of a story arc where there's a lot of promise and a lot of very vague things that have yet to be determined and people begin to formulate their own ideas of what that might look like because it's left so vague but then you get further in and it's still vague and it's still vague and then we get to where they have to wrap it up and it's kind of like they go dang it we're out of time and and then crystals appear and vials of magic and things that resolve things quickly in a way that nobody ever had in mind based on the expectations that were being set all along Yes, which is what makes theorizing about this show right now incredibly difficult. Right. (laughs) Because they always manage to pull out some object that has never been mentioned before that resolves all of the things. And, you know, I can't really theorize about something that the writers are going to think up the episode that the arc ends. And that's, I think that's a problem a lot of people have right now. But maybe we can try. (laughs) <laughs> just make up objects. <laughs> Knowing what we know, we can theorize about what the solution will be. <laughs> well, when you go to the highest level of deities and an object from the gods, <laughs> I don't think you can get any higher than that in their storytelling and the, the magical items. You sound like you just issued them a challenge. Moving on to the next scene that we see. I got to say here that when everyone comes back into the apartment, the Charmings are all there and everything. I have to say I was totally wrong about David dying. Remember, I theorized that he's going to die because of how big that goodbye was. And then I thought Hook wouldn't be coming back because of how big that goodbye was. I think they've decided that in this show, it makes sense for every character parting to involve a big goodbye because you just never know. It keeps us guessing. Even though most of the time you do know. However, I think they also wanted to make sure that we didn't feel that Arthur was running about the woods in handcuffs for the entire time since we last saw him. They made sure to mention that he just escaped. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Don't put Walter in charge of guarding the water fountain. No, but good to see him, even though he didn't get to say anything. The water fountain. Yeah, (laughs) literally. You know, the old joke that says I wouldn't trust him to guard a water fountain or a water cooler or. Nope. I don't know that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, they literally could have put anybody in the position to guard Arthur except Sleepy. (laughs) Like, it's kind of the worst possible choice, but it did make for a nice comedic moment. Before the full emotion of Emma was unleashed upon us. Beginning here and not stopping until the end of the episode. (laughs) But I agreed with her completely. 
I never should have gone down there. So right. I made so many mistakes. So correct. (laughs) It's true. I'm glad she can finally see it. She decided she was going to just rip her heart in half and shove it into the not body of the dead guy and bring him back. That was never going to work. And I'm so glad it didn't. (laughs) I'm glad she admitted something. But at the same time, everyone around her kind of keeps trying to take that away from her. It's kind of a big character moment for Emma. She should have to face that she went straight off to the underworld without any kind of sensible plan, without really thinking through all the dangers, what this would involve, if she could actually be successful. And I understand that she's emotional and she lost somebody she loves. And we do questionable things when we lose people we love. But I am glad that she kind of owned up to the fact that she made some really questionable choices, starting way, way back in Camelot even. Yeah. But everybody throughout the episode, you know, Snow at the very end is like, this isn't your fault. So I kind of wish they would stop coddling her, essentially. Well, Snow did also, and I think rightly so, point out that they did save the underworld and they helped a bunch of people move on. I don't think that could have been possible if Emma did not go down there. Did they save the underworld, though? I saw that you wrote that in your notes, and I've got some rebuttals when we get to a couple <laughs> scenes. I think so, but we'll dig into that more in a little bit, I'm sure. Because, you know, one thing is they were trying to save the underworld from Hades because Hades is trapping the souls there so they can't move on. But they didn't release Hades from the underworld, thus releasing the souls. Hades left of his own accord after True Love's Kiss. Yes, but would he have had the opportunity to get True Love's Kiss if it wasn't for Emma going down there? Well, she didn't drag Zelina down there. Hades forced Rumpel to open a portal to get the baby, and Zelina just happened to, like, you know, slip through. Yeah. Coincidence number one. (laughs) And there are some more things. So I'll have to ask you at the end of the episode if you still think they saved the underworld. (laughs) Okay. And speaking of the underworld, Arthur arrives down there. And, you know, there's one thing about Arthur that's consistent. He's always demanding to know where he is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I did like that the red peppers are drying up in the bowls at Granny's without Hades there. Did you guys notice that? Oh, no, I didn't notice. Yeah. Huh. They look really sad and decayed. So without him, the underworld is less spicy? Yes. Huh. It was interesting to kind of see a more typical arrival in the underworld, namely a dead person arriving in the underworld. And he's going, where am I? But the funny thing is, he's one of the few who has gone to this underworld who even has seen electric lights and motorized vehicles. He's seen Storybrooke before. Imagine what the rest of them thought, like the blind witch. Yeah, true. What is a diner? What is this thing that's glowing and hanging from the ceiling? What just almost hit me in the street? Maybe that's why that little boy stopped talking centuries ago. Maybe. (laughs) That was creepy and strange and... I wouldn't want to be a kid sitting in front of her. I'm just saying. That little kid is actually credited as sad-eyed boy. (laughs) (laughs) Did they just think it would give us chills to see a child sitting in front of the blind witch? And so they wanted to put him there, but they didn't want him to say any words. Good point. But, you know, the souls still are trapped because Hook can't move on and everybody still seems to be down there unable to move on and you know the sad-eyed boy is in fact sad 
I think that's because Cruella and the Blind Witch are still kind of trying to be in control and preventing people from moving Mm -hmm. on. After all, they stole the storybook. Right. They're preventing souls from leaving just like Hades did. So did anyone actually save the underworld? (laughs) Well, uh... Well, Daniel. (laughs) By a string of events, yes. But I I am seeing your point that Emma herself didn't. Because you could say really Arthur is the one who is going to save the underworld. Yes, perhaps eventually by accidentally allowing a lying Hades to get back to Storybrooke and murder somebody else who is also a villain, they may have eventually set off the saving of the underworld. So long as Arthur, who is without magic, can defeat Cruella and the Blind Witch, both of whom have magic, maybe they can. Yeah. And it would seem that the pages that Henry wrote that were sticking up vertically out of the storybook are long gone. And those had the unfinished business in them. Well, and Cruella, what did she do with those? Did she throw them into the River of Lost Souls? Did somebody find them? What about the people who didn't find their pages or that Henry didn't have time to write the pages for? Your question's a They are good questions, but I think that from the story perspective, they are a little bit pointless. I think we're supposed to think that all the stories are still together in the storybook. I don't think that. So Arthur and Hook decide to go on a quest to find Hades' weakness. And Hook is this line that one good deed from Arthur, a really great one, will make up for all the bad ones that Arthur did. And this is kind of one of those questions we've been pondering all season about do good deeds wipe out your bad ones? And then who decides who's sitting in judgment? How many good deeds equal one bad? And I'm bringing this up because at the very end of this episode, we're going to have a very literal deus ex machina who decides what deed is good and doesn't, you know, punish any kind of wickedness. So I'm bringing that up now for when we get to a later scene. Yeah. I would also mention that that seems to be the first time since that I can recall, since arriving in the underworld, that they've given any sort of statement that there's any kind of balance of deeds in play. And it's it's a worldview that I don't agree with because I am a Christian, but it is, I think... Right. Uh, Christianity is a very large religion and a very, very highly popular worldview, especially in America. But I think for those who either aren't very serious about their religion or don't claim a religion at all, I think this is the most popular thinking is that if there's a better place and a worse place, then, then my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, or I hope my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And I think that's why they're incorporating this here is that's the popular, not necessarily tied to a specific religion style of thinking. Right. It it just isn't anything they've set up in the last several episodes. There's been a lot of moving on one direction or another, but it seemed to have everything to do with some kind of resolution of 
their time in the underworld and nothing to do with any kind of balance. So it's just like another sort of, I don't know, another added current, perhaps just something reaching out of a river that was already there (laughs) inexplicably. Maybe it's because things are changing now that Hades is gone. It's kind of like eternity, sudden death mode. (laughs) Where whatever points points you've accumulated up to this point don't matter because now in this afterlife sudden death mode, all you need to do is do that right thing and then you get to go to the better place instead of the worst place. Yes, maybe. (laughs) But back in the overworld, what do you think of Emma's reaction here? She more than ever, and I get I get where she's supposed to be emotionally. I kind of get it, but the way she's coming off is, again, like a 14-year-old, which we've also talked about in previous years in the podcast. It's just that she's been through so much growth and development. I'm not sure that she should still be in that exact place. Maybe that's just the way she's coming off to me, but she sounds... It's beyond impulsive. It's also, it just sounds young. It's a little odd, but she's just charging off by herself. No plan, no help. She's just going to go run at Hades. And I don't know what she's doing. I mean, that hasn't worked. It didn't work when she charged to the underworld. It hasn't worked. Nothing she's been doing is working. She knows she made mistakes, but now she's just trying to just run off. And it, it, it was actually kind of irritating. Yes. And I really appreciated what Charming had to say in this scene, which is, I need you to start seeing clearly, you know, slow down, take a moment to realize that you are really hurting and you've got a lot of grief and you maybe need to process that first without flying off the handle because this is something they keep emphasizing this episode over and over is that Hades is a god. And for Emma to go up against a god, they really better have some kind of good plan. Right. And so Emma running off like she's been doing isn't going to work. It's nice to see him get to have a fatherly moment. Because mm-hmm. technically, he remembers his life. He should have 30 years more wisdom than he looks like he would have. Zelina and Hades then go to the mayor's office, and that's when we get introduced to the Olympian crystal that belonged to Zeus. <laughs> At this many minutes into the episode, the last episode of Hades' story arc, we are introduced to the very thing that is the weakness he's been hiding. So it's a family heirloom. It belonged to Zeus. It has the name of Olympus on it, which Olympus is that city that's very prominent in Greek mythology. It's a crystal. It's all of this stuff. Certainly, there is great Greek mythological backing and history to this. So Jacqueline. No. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a real thing in mythology. (laughs) I mean, and I don't know why they went this route to call it the Olympian crystal, because there is something very, very easy to use. And that's Zeus's weapon of choice, which is a thunderbolt, which when they depict it in art, always looks like it actually kind of looks like the crystal. It looks like a lightning bolt. Because how weak would it look for Zeus to lose control of one of his lightning bolts? Hmm. So they said, hmm. Let's uh let's make it something else. We already kind of made the prop, but it's a crystal. Yeah, I don't know. When the press release for this episode came out and they talked about the Olympian crystal, I was just like, but why wouldn't you just use the best weapon Zeus has? It's the thing he is probably most associated with. Um, and we'll have a link in the show notes 
to an actual statue of Zeus holding up his thunderbolt. And it looks exactly like the crystal, actually. Yeah. And I think what they wanted to do is maybe just instead of calling it a thunderbolt or... or Is a thunderbolt really a thing? uh, Actually, yeah. There are a couple products with trademarks that use that term. and thunder comes from lightning. And lightning bolt. My personal theory is that the Olympian crystal actually was produced by the nose of one of the Titans. <laughs> Somewhere around like eating and regurgitating people, one of them kind of got just a hint of an illness and just got rid of it in one fantastic Titan-like move and this crystal was produced. That's my theory. That. Some of the fans would probably think that's the same way that some of the episodes have been scripted, too. (laughs) We're not saying we are such fans or you are such fans. We are not saying the episodes were written that way. But I know some of the fans would feel that way. I'm not going to say who. (laughs) Well, outside of this... Olympian crystal that Hades magically produces. There was kind of this really nice Zadie's moment. And since this episode basically, you know, kills that entire ship, I'm going to hang on to the nice moments. And Hades tells the Lena, for you, I'd give up everything, which I think is kind of sweet. Maybe it's a freaking lie. (laughs) Also maybe disturbing in a lot of ways, but What can we say about true love if Zadie's does have it because we know true love's kiss worked, but Hades really just wants to watch the world burn? I'm not sure that those two things can coexist because if he wants everything and at the same time says, for you, I'd give up everything, those two can't coexist. He can't have everything and give up everything. So I don't, well... Then do they okay. not have true love? Because it was true love's kiss. I know. That's how his heart started beating. Like, that was a vital plot point. His heart started beating. He got to leave the underworld. And with his heart now beating or unfrozen, he can reform the crystal. But it's still true love's kiss. <laughs> yeah. And this will sound so contrary to the way the rest of Once Upon a Time has gone with true love. But maybe... It was true love before his heart started beating. But now that his heart started beating again, it's released his more mischievous side. Well, the best way I can defend it is in thinking that they seem to think true love, capital T, capital L, is somehow this qualitative state of the heart and the relationship between two people regardless of what transpires between them. And whether they're ever together or not. Kind of like a soulmate. Yeah. And so it's almost as if he, like someone else we know, and and Regina says it later, he wants everything. And so much that he won't give it up for her. Who knows? Maybe if he had more time, he would come to a place where he actually would. I wouldn't hold my breath given what we've seen from Rumpel. (laughs) But... He it, he let himself get in the way of the true love that actually exists between them. That would be my best explanation because it sure doesn't look like true love. That actually doesn't make sense in the sense that if you go with earlier episodes before things got so convoluted, 
the show actually disproves that theory. Otherwise, Charming would not have had to get Snow to fall in love with him again in order to break the curse of the forgetting potion. Right. Because if true love were just a thing that exists between them no matter what, then it doesn't matter whether she remembers him or not. He could just kiss her and she'd remember. Yeah, that's true. The same with Rumple and Belle right now. I mean, true love's kiss yep. didn't work last week, but it should because they we know they have true love. We've seen the kiss start to work before. So, <laughs> yeah. I Consistency. <laughs> I wish they could kind of decide what true love on this show is. And one of the things that does seem to be consistent throughout, except when you start picking it apart a little bit, is that true love is sacrifice. In fact, that line is actually uttered this week. Yeah. And if it is sacrifice, okay, you know, if that's the theme they want to run with, then I can work with that. But did Hades really sacrifice anything for Zelina? He sacrificed the one contract on the one baby that wasn't super important to him except as leverage. And he, he only sacrificed in that moment. So I guess maybe true love is on again, off again. Like really bad on again, off again. Then is it true? Like, don't get in a fight before you <laughs> I mean, go under a sleeping curse because the thing may not work after that. And how do we deal with something like Papa Hook and the nurse? Because Papa Hook was under a sleeping curse and the nurse and he fell in love during the sleeping curse. And then she woke him up without them ever exchanging a single line of dialogue together. Whoa. And how is that sacrifice? I just want to take a side moment to say that. Papa Hook and the Nurse is the worst spin-off idea ever. <laughs> <laughs> also, maybe a good band name. <laughs> and that's why we well, we do have our mini rants because even while we're enjoying the show and the characters, there's just so much that happens because plot. Because move from A to B to C and just get it done somehow. And meanwhile, outside the town hall, they discover, the heroes that is, discover this protection spell on the town hall. And lo and behold, there's a secret tunnel. Right. Who knew? Why would there need to be a secret tunnel if Regina can always just poof in and out? Well, she couldn't originally when Storybrooke was built. Yeah, that's true. But why would she need a secret tunnel when everybody was cursed and had no idea who she was? Just more fun that way. <laughs> <laughs> She's having like secret raves down there at night with herself or something. I mean, I've given I've given this some thought and we've probably discussed it. That curse. I mean, it had to get super boring after a while. And we even saw that it did. So maybe the secret tunnel was just a way of confusing people and they were going to forget the next day anyway. So, yeah, just, you know, it was how she had her town hall meetings, probably. <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but see, like if I were in her position, I'd call people into the office and make them worry about something. And then I'd say, I'll be right back. And I'd leave. Well, no, that doesn't even work because the uh, the tunnel didn't go into the office. So I don't know what its purpose was. Well, <laughs> at least for this episode, I think it, it did serve as a way to get them into the town hall. And gave us a nice throwback to a previous episode. Yeah, episode 313, Witch Hunt, which was Outlaw Queen's first real moment and adventure together when they were trying to break into Regina's castle back in the Enchanted Forest. 
Yeah, and that's when Regina was just really upset about losing Henry, and she had pulled her heart out, at least temporarily. And then Robin was like, well, I'll go with you. I'll help you out. And remember, Regina was intending to kill herself there inside the castle or to to fall asleep. That was not to kill herself, but take that sleeping potion. Uh, but That's why I almost thought we'd seen the tunnel before. Yeah, it was the start of their relationship, which is a good clue that it was also going to be the end of their relationship <sighs> or at the end of someone's life rather i've never actually just just a moment of honesty as if i don't have those all the time i've never cared too too much about their relationship but this this and we will get into it even more but the way this whole thing has gone no what do you just think about no what regina was saying about zelina and with robin confronting her I I I was happy that Robin showed some backbone for kind of the first time in a long time. They haven't really let him do or say a whole lot, but it would have not made any sense if he hadn't been upset about what she did. I just she did not respond in a good way. Yeah, I really appreciated Robin's line, you're not actually apologizing, you're defending her. Right. Um, I mean, and defending herself, really. I said last week that she, in a sense, and I thought we were supposed to be starting to trust Hades, but she still, in a sense, demanded that he give his baby to Hades. It was, trust me, because I trust Selena, and she trusts Hades. And literally, the baby ended up in Hades' arms. Yeah, they're, it's like playing telephone with trust. Yeah, and she's walking through the tunnel going, I just wanted to give her a chance. I'm like, so you used his baby? <laughs> Giving her a chance is like letting her do a task on the mission. You don't hand her the baby just because, even if you do trust her, and she was trustworthy, but she was going with someone that wasn't trustworthy. Just because Zelina trusted Hades didn't mean any of that should have ever happened. And then Regina is just kind of justifying it, which doesn't seem... I don't know if it seems out of character or if it, it was, she was, it was just so nonchalant. It really bothered me. And I think that was probably more, it wasn't just writing. That was like directing and everything. I don't know if it was supposed to come off that way, but it really bothered me. This is dangerous. Obviously it's life and death. It's the baby. Like what in the world? She should be practically weeping over what's happened. Yeah. I, I don't think the baby's life was ever in danger necessarily uh, because Hades wouldn't want to harm Zelina's baby. Zelina wouldn't want to harm her own baby. The idea I that was suppose. dangerous though was here. The villains are going to run off with the baby and raise the baby to become a villain. Well, or we, something. we had theorized that even if he wanted to time travel, the baby's life wasn't in danger because we've already seen that happen to a living baby. Yeah. <laughs> Strangely enough, but they were awfully concerned about Hades having the baby. They spoke as though that would mean the baby's life was in danger or that the baby would come to harm. Or that the baby would be taken. Not necessarily in danger, but just taken away from well, where the baby belonged. However, whatever way you want to slice it, it was bad and it was Regina's fault. And speaking of slicing and bad, when <laughs> Rumpel visits Mo French... <laughs> Uh, this was here, I mean, two incredibly resentful men behaving incredibly horribly to each other. 
with, yeah, with, this scene is horrible. It's it's so bad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I now I don't think I said last week, but when Belle first said, "My father will wake me up," in her little turn at a tantrum, I forgot that Mo. I thought Mo was in the underworld. I forgot he was still alive. And then when they started t- talking about taking her back so he could wake her up, I realized, oh, yeah, he never actually died. The best part of this scene, maybe the whole episode, was the old friend. <laughs> See, I actually thought, Jeremy, you would be cringing at that because I thought that harkens back to the episode Skin Deep. One of the ugliest things we've seen Rumple do. Yeah. Beating a man almost to death. Uh, a man who did not even remember his past at that point because right. the curse hadn't been broken. And Rumpel's just beating the everything out of this guy. <laughs> yeah. But but here again, and this this goes back to everything I said. I think this is when I actually began thinking about wishing there would be a very, very – no offense to – the author of this episode or any of the other writing team it's just it's about consistency and about characters and about the history and the depth of the characters i mean everything robert carlyle does he does pretty well but he has the presence and the skill and rumple has kind of a history of being calmly menacing he did not need to be beating things with the cane now, I think this is a new side of Rumple, not just in this episode. I think he's getting I, more violent. Yes, not, <laughs> because here Belle is, is out of the picture for now, and people are refusing to work with him. Well, in his pocket anyway. And all of this other stuff is happening that's, that's been against his will. I think he's being pushed to the limit, and he's now becoming much more vindictive. He has a vindictive side. Did you know he had a vindictive side? Well, a little bit, a <laughs> little bit. Okay. As horrible as Rumpel is in this scene, and I'm not going to defend him, I mm, I think Mo might be worse. <laughs> because what he's essentially saying is, I do not approve of the fact that my daughter fell in love with you and married you. Therefore, I am going to leave my one and only child in a death-like sleeping curse in a burning red room while she's pregnant. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know what, Mo? You don't get to decide <laughs> if Belle should work on her marriage or not. <laughs> I mean, true. She, she is a strong, independent woman. And if she wants to try and work things out with her lawful husband because they're about to have a child and she really loved him and still does, then, oh, my gosh, you don't stand in the way of that. You don't get to take away her agency that way. Ugh. What if, he, <laughs> what if he dies of a heart attack and there's no one left to wake her up? She's literally trapped in a burning red room with a child. I mean, to be I fair, can't with this guy. He probably doesn't know about the burning red room. He's kind of out of the loop. I think we're not supposed to remember the burning red room either. <laughs> I think not. Because, I, yeah, the sleeping curse actually has after effects. You don't just – one does not simply wake up from the sleeping curse. <laughs> <laughs> well – Okay, maybe he doesn't know about the Red Room, but that doesn't take away the fact that he's he's saying that he's going to decide whether or not Belle gets to really ever be a person again. Yeah. Ugh. Now, here's 
On the flip side of things, Theo sent in this feedback saying, I profoundly disagree with Daniel about Rumpel being selfish in this episode. There were two people in the florist scene who were selfish and not one was Rumpel. As a father of two, I see Rumpel as a man desperate to do anything to save his child, just like I would with my two kids. He knows there is an answer out there to save his wife and child, and that the one person who could is refusing to help. If that weren't bad enough, the person who could save them is the father and grandfather of his wife and child, and that has to be appalling to Rumpel that a father wouldn't help his own daughter no matter what. A parent's love is unconditional, and Mo French in that scene shows his love for Belle is conditional. Only if she acts the way he wants her to act, only if she loves who he wants her to love, then he'll help her. Since she loves someone her father hates, he rather she be in a horrible curse along with his grandchild instead of setting her free. That is selfish. If it were me and my two daughters were in Belle's position, before Rumpel even finished talking, I would be kissing my two girls awake without reservations. I would never want to see my daughters in pain, and since we know from past episodes what being under a sleeping curse is like, Red Room anyone? Belle is in a horrific place. The second person who is selfish in that scene was Emma. She barges in, not caring about Belle or caring enough to ask Rumpel why he was there, before she burst out with her demand for him to help her with no thought of others. Why do you think he was there, Emma? Belle. Duh. Her actions since the start of season 5B have become less savior-like as the half-season has progressed. I think in this episode, Rumpel was doing everything he could to save Belle. First, by getting Mo to kiss her awake, per Belle's instructions, then by making the deal with Hades for the magic crystal, which he probably wanted to use to magically wake Belle up in lieu of her father's failure to kiss her. That's, I think, first of all, great feedback. Thank you. I think that here near the end, that might be giving Rumpel a little too much credit, but we'll be digging more into why Rumpel might want the crystal in a little bit yeah at this point i mean my bad list is getting pretty long i mean rumple's on it hades is on it bell's actually on it frankly i thought that was where that was going i thought bell assuming she's in pandora's box in rumple's pocket a position she was able to be put in because she put herself under the sleeping curse i thought they were gonna say that bell was the other selfish one in the room because yeah. that was that was very selfish. Um, again, she didn't really know for sure what effect the curse would have on the baby. The baby might have been unaffected, and with the mother under a sleeping curse, might not have survived. Blah. There, so many things have to happen next Sunday <laughs> for me to put some of these people back on the good list. Emma's kind of on the bad list right now, just because of this, because of the way she was behaving through this whole thing. I think there have got to be some really uncomfortable dynamics. I'm probably jumping ahead far too much, but going into next week, there have got to be some really uncomfortable dynamics and things happening. Do you think Rumpel was right when he said, you're the one who got us into this mess? Yes. Yes. Yep. And I agree quite a bit with Theo in his feedback. This is a very twisted version of Skin Deep, in my opinion. In Skin Deep, Emma finds Rumple beating Mo to death, and what she does is she acts like 
her archetype. She acts like the savior and someone who is concerned with justice. She takes Rumple and she puts him in jail. She is concerned for Mo. She's concerned for Rumple because she knows that this Mr. Gold character is acting in a way that doesn't quite feel like he should be acting. And she wants to get to the bottom of it. But first and foremost, she's going to make sure he can't hurt anybody. In this version, Emma walks into the shop, sees the scene with two people who clearly do not like each other, with Rumple, with violent intentions, and she isn't concerned at all. She just tells Mo to leave, and then she goes after what she wants. How do I kill this guy who's threatening our town? And maybe that's noble. You know, she does want to save Storybrooke, but... She has no concern with this entire scene in general. She doesn't care what Rumpel wants. She doesn't care why Rumpel is there threatening Mo. Has she even asked about Belle? Does she even know that Belle's in a sleeping curse and inside of a dark box? So, no. yeah, I kind of silently applauded Theo's feedback just now. Andrea also said, yes, it's her fault. Thank God the writers had the guts to have a character say what the audience had been thinking the entire time. Emma's inability to let go of Hook, even though he begged numerous times to let him go, led to this mess. By her blackmailing Rumple to open the portal, it gave Hades what he wanted, which was to get Zelina, restart his heart, then go to the land of the living in Storybrooke, and unfortunately, causing Robin's death. She may not have started the proverbial fire, but she certainly doused it with gasoline. Back down in Underworld, with Hook and Arthur searching through Hades' uh, throne room there, we did finally get to see, and I can't remember... uh, if we knew for certain the name of the river of lost souls, Jacqueline, did we figure that out previously? We did. Matt had been keeping track of which sign posts and which signs, and he's the one who kind of figured it out for us. Okay. So we did actually see a little bit of the title of that river, which was Archeron. Also, we got to see some pages from the storybook and I got some screenshots of this, did some research, also looked very closely to things And there is some interesting stuff here. The first thing we see when we get to see some of the pages of the book is uh, some stuff that is about Hades a little bit. It's a little hard to read because of the blurring and some of the text is obstructed. But it says this, Hades nodded to himself, impressed with the leader's magic. The leader was elegantly dressed in black, which also impressed Hades. Proper fashion was very important to him. He noticed that much something that whatever the leader was shouting about, it was a something tirade about some young farm girl who had offended the great leader. The leader believed that the something villagers were hiding the farm girl, but instead of snapping the necks of the villagers for their behavior, something the leader merely went down the line of them, something each one into a drooling, screeching beast, probably transforming them into a screeching beast. The something, something, something retribution may have been satisfying to the leader, but it wouldn't do at all for Hades to somehow convince the leader something killing. It turns out the leader supplies of souls, uh, supply dry up. He started... um, it gets really hard to read Apparently. as it gets near the end, <laughs> but something more about a hairy beast and and so on. That isn't too telling. The second page <laughs> is, of course, the golden bird 
Which they keep giving us. The third page we see is a lot more telling of the story. And it's a little bit hard to read, especially hard to listen to if I try and read it, because there's a lot of stuff that's blurred out, that's obstructed. But the general gist of it is that Kronos, the father, had just died, maybe even been killed by Hades. And the dead body was there. And Hades even says to his dead father, then you're wrong about me, father. I will make a great king. And Hades was very rageful, very angry, but at the same time, also kind of lacking emotion. And he went over and took the Olympian crystal that was shaped like a crude lightning bolt. And then Zeus walks in, sees all of this happening and says to Hades, your heart really is sickened. And they have this little fight with each other a little bit. And it sounds like, and it gets much harder to read, but it sounds like Hades was aiming the crystal at Zeus's heart and was about to kill Zeus. When then I'm guessing, and then the page ends saying, when dot, dot, dot. So I'm guessing that the way the rest of the story would win is that then Zeus stopped Hades' heart, broke the crystal, and that's when Hades was banished to the underworld. Basically, this is the flashback we were supposed to see this week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, it's also not even remotely anything resem- resembling Greek mythology. But, <laughs> funny enough... It does sound an awful lot like Loki and Thor from Marvel's Thor. (laughs) And by a lot, I mean exactly like it. That's funny. Yeah. Just (laughs) replace the Olympian crystal with the Tesseract and you'd probably be right there with Marvel. That's pretty funny. Jacqueline, for those of us who don't know, what's the nature of the relationship between Kronos and his children? Bad. He eats them. (laughs) um yeah so i've expanded upon this this story a couple times over the season but as a brief refresher cronus was the head god before the olympians took over and he ingested all of his children from mother rhea and the only one he never managed to eat was zeus because rhea hid him away Um, and then cronus ends up regurgitating his children in reverse order and then the Olympians take down Cronus. It's not a good relationship. But here it sounds like they're positioning Cronus as a loving father. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, I think it's because if they had actually done this in a more traditional manner, uh, uh, traditional and once upon a time, and had shown the flashback, they're kind of setting it up so that you see a good father with two sons. He favors one son, so the other son ends up killing the father to really drive home the point that this son, who is Hades, is not a good guy. (laughs) I I think I might ultimately be glad that they just didn't try to make that flashback. (laughs) I liked as they were starting out the search for the pages, Arthur says, sounds like this Hades was a worse king than I was. It's sort of like a one-line admission, both that he was a bad king And that he knows he was so bad that he's surprised that the Lord of the Underworld was worse. Right. (laughs) And also he uses the word stuff. So as in, I hid the important stuff where no one would dare touch or whatever he said. It's all of his cookies and crumpets and donuts and all of those nice pastries. 
I felt that the word things might have been more kingly than stuff. But, you know, he's been to Storybrooke. There was kind of a cool uh, production note here that if you look at the pool table in Hades' room, the only balls on the pool table are black and red. Oh, nice. I thought that was kind of cute. That's confusing. <laughs> right. So Hook and the stubble sandwich go back to the no. underworld diner. <laughs> I think Hook was part of the stubble sandwich. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. would make sense. Yeah, Joel, I, it, would, it would be both of them and Cruella wants both the entire sandwich. I, I, w- I was thinking that she was just all enamored with Arthur now. <laughs> nope. She's definitely talking about both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes i i was thinking stubbled hope comes to the underworld for cruella <laughs> it does look like she's getting some gin though it's her happy ending <laughs> <laughs> so correct me if i'm wrong or maybe i should say stop me if i'm wrong to keep with the show's mythology did she not say she threw the book into the River of Lost Souls? Yeah. Yeah. What about that made Hook decide we can totally get that? And how did it end up where it was? <laughs> nope. No idea. None. And even the statue's arms were repositioned in order to hold the book. I see. Because I looked back at previous episodes when we saw that statue and its arms were down kind of like in the position of a dog sitting it's it's two front arms and paws or hands or whatever they are were down on the ground here they're holding the book i guess things are changing now that hades is gone (laughs) including the statues but cruella is just like hades she wants to keep everybody in the underworld because if she were to let them go and have them have finished their business so they could move on it wouldn't be very much fun yeah correct so again daniel did anyone really save the underworld well i think arthur (laughs) probably will because look at it accidental arthur (laughs) so operation firebird is a total bust and we're going to depend on the guy who ruined camelot (laughs) (laughs) i know i know but all it really takes for a people to uh, overthrow someone who seems to have more power is for the people to realize how much power they actually have. I think that's what will essentially happen here, is that Arthur will lead a rebellion against Cruella and the Blind Witch, and then uh, equip the people, and then he will become the new ruler and help people to deal with their unfinished business and move on. As they're gouging out our eyes, that tomorrow will regret it, but today we rise. Yep. Thank you, Gallivant, season two. I refuse to acknowledge or associate with that show. (laughs) Back in the overworld, Hades is continuing to repair the crystal, and they have this little conversation between Hades and Zelina. And Zelina, you know, it's surprising that after all of this, and Zelina saying, Regina got everything I was supposed to have and all of this and all of her coveting and all of everything she wanted. Yeah. Now she's saying, 
She wants the simple things. She's got a sister. She's got a boyfriend. She's got a baby. She's good. She wants she just, a nice little house. <laughs> she just wants to live, not rule. <laughs> she, she wants to pay off the mortgage on that house and stand in the backyard and yell over the phone, I'm debt free. Huh. And she wants a little one, a little baby pistachio bouncing around. Whereas Hades, on the other hand, wants everything. He wants to rule. He doesn't want the simple life. They need marriage counseling. Hmm, they <laughs> need a lot of things. Side note, Zelina, especially, you know, um, a couple of days ago, having been one of the most selfish, wicked people ever, why didn't she name the baby already? At least what she wanted to name her. Plot. Good question. <laughs> Seems like she would have been all about knowing what to call that baby. So we know that Hades is a few thousand years old because he said he's been dwelling on something for a few thousand years. Yeah, I'm good with that. A few thousand years makes sense for me. During this phone call, this is setting up what we end the episode with. And so oh. we'll dig a bit more into some of the thinking here. You mean Hades of the underworld talking on a cell phone <laughs> with the dark one, Rumble Stiltskin? Like you do. Like you do. <laughs> but, you know, a little production note here. It bugs me in TV shows when you see characters always interacting face to face. Like driving half an hour from the other side of town to come, deliver a few lines, and leave. Smallville. That was something that really bugged me in the TV series <laughs> Smallville is Lana would drive, I don't know how long, to come see Clark, deliver a few lines, and then drive however long back to her home. <laughs> and, and that kind of thing happens a lot in TV shows just because it looks better if you have the characters interacting with each other face to face. So I could appreciate that they did the convenient thing here is let's have one character actually call the other on the phone. Even though unlike other shows, these guys can actually poof from one place to another, <laughs> but I guess protection spell. Exactly. So Rumpel wants a piece of the crystal. Which I didn't hear him say the first time or I might have understood what was coming. A piece of the crystal. What can you do with a piece of the crystal that... So here, Hades is spending hours upon hours trying with his magic to repair it. And Rumpel thinks he can do with a piece of it. What does that even mean? Or was the repairing just a delay to keep Hades from using it until the end of the episode at the right time? I think the crystal, in whatever state it is, does possess a lot of raw power. But Hades couldn't use that to end people until he fully repaired it. And I think that Rumpel wants some of that raw power. I found it really interesting that he could tell when the item came into Storybrooke. <sighs> yeah, that is interesting. I'm realizing as we're discussing this, I mean, I, I've known this, but it's another reason that this crystal appeared besides ending the plot. They had to figure out a way to kill people more than they normally kill them because of everything that's happened this season. Mm -hmm. I will say I thought it was fun to hear Rumpel call him a stranger in a strange land. It was a book long before this. However, that was the title of an episode of Lost. Hmm. Yes, in season three. So, little Lost shout out. <laughs> Rumpel did also say this is his kingdom. Oh. <sighs> What Rumpel, does Rumpel. that even mean? Rumpelstiltskin. Has, <laughs> he's never had any kind of ruling ambition. He just wants his power and his wife and his son. And for the most part, 
He may not like the Charmings or anybody else in Storybrooke, but I mean, he tolerates them. He doesn't go around trying to rule them or control them or, you know, anything. Mm -hmm. And now he's like, this is my domain. This is my kingdom. Since when? You didn't even try and take over the Enchanted Forest when you were the most powerful dark one. It means this is the vocabulary upon which the next story arc will be built. (laughs) It was bolded if we were to read it in a textbook. Well, Matthew Paul does point out that technically this is his kingdom because he is the landowner of the entire town. We learned that from episode one of the show. Yeah, but but there again, he's getting ambitious even for the Dark One. I mean, he may have controlled all the land and collected rent, but he's never set himself up as a king. And when you have a kingdom, it's typically because you're a king and you're, you know, like a tyrannical monster who wants to control everything. And speaking of collecting the rent, you know who helps us pay the rent for the podcast (laughs) episode after episode? It's our wonderful heroes. That's right. You were, you were probably guessing something else. But yes, it's our heroes. Thank you very much for supporting this episode of the podcast. So for this episode, I'd like to thank David Newland, Lisa Slack, Kevin Crow, Aaron Nunnally, Greg Shope, Mary Ann Lavati, and Tracy Anderson, and our 32 heroes on Patreon. Thank you very much for supporting the podcast. We could not do this without you. Your kind support does help us pay the rent. Really, there are things we have to rent in order to run the podcast, like renting the server, renting plugins that we have to pay annual or monthly expenses for certain things, renting the media hosting, like where your MP3 files download from is this advanced CDN that gives us stats. It's designed for podcasting, designed for all those kinds of stuff. And we have to rent that and pay for that on a monthly basis. And your support of the podcast makes that possible. You are a hero to us. So thank you very much to our supporters for this episode. And if you would like to be a hero to the podcast as well and get access to fun things like bloopers and early access to spoilers and other stuff, then go to oncepodcast.com slash hero. And thank you for your support. That's at oncepodcast.com slash hero. Moving on back into the secret tunnel. This is when I first got the idea from this episode and and I stay spoiler free as much as possible, which is surprisingly uh, spoiler free. Sometimes uh, I had no idea Robin would die at all. I was thinking someone else would die. I mentioned that earlier, but in this tunnel scene, this is when watching this episode for the first time I knew Robin's going to die. Robin's going to his death because he said, Regina, you are my future. And Regina said to him, I'm with you always. And when things like that are said in TV shows, one of them's going to (laughs) die. Which should not be the rule. Just it shouldn't be. These characters can have depth without setting it up for the emotional payoff of one of them dying. Mm -hmm. But this was the continuation. This was part of what I was saying about Regina earlier. She said she feels horrible. She said, I'm sorry Zelina has your daughter. She never said that I recall I was wrong. That was not something I should have asked you to do. And I don't even remember, honestly, why it was so important. I don't know what they did. I can't recall what they did. That necessitated his handing over the baby. Seemed like it was just logistics. Well, yeah. So Robin arrives at the library in the underworld and 
Regina convinces Robin to hand over the baby to Zelina just because Zelina's the mom. Robin basically vanishes from the picture because Rumple takes his heart and I guess passes out or something. And then Zelina and Hades go to the portal and then they go to Storybrooke. In our chat, Gio points something out saying, I feel horrible is apologetic. Because when you say, I'm sorry, well, sorry means regret. So really you're saying, I regret this. And she's saying, I feel horrible, which actually I think is a slight step above saying, I'm sorry, because people say, I'm sorry, almost flippantly these days, just to say, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Agree. But to say, I feel horrible is more than just saying, I regret that, or I'm sorry, but it's saying, I feel something too. Yeah, but she still contextualized it to be, I feel horrible about the consequences of the actions of others that I did not anticipate when I made the decisions that I made that were just fine. Okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That's, it just felt like continued justification and maybe it wasn't meant to come out that way, but it definitely did to me. I'm sorry, Zelina has your daughter. Well, yeah, of course you are. Whose fault is that? (laughs) I just would have loved to hear the words I was wrong. And knowing that these were some of their final moments just makes the whole thing even worse. And that's the ultimate result. Maybe we'll get to hear her say to his grave, I'm sorry I asked you to trust Selena, who was trusting Hades, who was not trustworthy. I don't know. I'm really, I'm, I'm really frustrated by this. This was a kind of a terrible way to end Robin's underused character without sending him to Forgotten Character Island because he was so important to Regina. Yeah. Speaking of phrases that, you know, maybe need to be rewritten or don't quite make a lot of sense, Robin agrees that we all have the capability to change, which is why he kind of forgives Regina for this whole Zelina and baby pistachio debacle. But then they qualify it by saying, except Hades. You know, we have to go get the baby back from Hades because he doesn't have the ability to change or we shouldn't even give him a chance to change. And I mean, I'm not saying that I feel sorry for Hades because he appears to be just a black hat. Maybe, I don't know. I think there is some emotional depth there. I wish we had gotten a flashback to see it. But this whole season, we've been questioning whether or not love can change somebody or if somebody has the ability to change on their own. And both Robin and Regina right now are like, well, no. Because, (laughs) you know, we can't give Hades a chance at all because he backslid or lied to us or something. And this feels a little mm, ironic, maybe given Regina in season two. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, He would have worn a black hat, except his hair burned it off. (laughs) Which, by the way, we haven't seen him burn his blue hair for a little while. (laughs) That's a shame. I mean, (laughs) that's the highlight of the season right there, is that really terrible CGI blue hair. (laughs) It sort of felt like it would have been almost appropriate for him to do it when he met Arthur, though. Yeah. And then snap. I wonder if maybe they were originally planning to, but they needed that budget for something else. (laughs) Maybe the whole being back in the underworld with the boat ride thing. And speaking of that. Uh, (laughs) I mean, yep, let's go there. I was wrong about the demon having a face. I mentioned that in the initial reactions. I thought maybe we saw the flash of a character's face when Hook hit the demon with the fire. But no. 
It was just a skull. Another one of those statements you never thought would come out in the Once Upon a Time <laughs> podcast in season one. Yep. Yeah. So, as if I haven't griped enough, this scene, it was as if it just was a Band-Aid, maybe meant to replace something else, and it wasn't fully thought through. I mean, we have, as you already pointed out, the reconfigured statue with the book that was already said to have been thrown into the River of Lost Souls. I guess you could say, ah, the book does weird stuff. It goes where it needs to go. Well, in which case it could have appeared somewhere above that chamber. They didn't have to go there. There were odd things about here we're this late in the story being reintroduced through Arthur's eyes to the River of Lost Souls, reintroduced to the same cavern we've already seen. They're on this big quest to rescue the book from the arms of this statue that apparently maybe can move, but is not the one fighting them. What's fighting them is the lost souls coming out of the river, which we've never seen them do. And they toss out a, your questions are pointless line. Maybe things are changing. I don't know. Well, here's a possible way to reconcile that all together. Lay it on me. Maybe Cruella did throw the book into the river of souls. And they just got worked up because they read it. Those lost souls have hope, so they're trying to kill people. Well, maybe there's something about the book that could <laughs> save those lost souls. Maybe, maybe not. But maybe the lost souls, now having a bit more freedom with Hades gone, maybe they put the book where they put it. <laughs> and then tried to kill the people that were coming to get it? Exactly. They're guarding it because it's Damn. now their book. Cruella threw it into the river. <laughs> they took it. Now it's their thing. This is the most fun we've had in centuries. You're not taking it. I I think that was Mila. And she wasn't so much trying to kill them as she was trying to get a kiss from Hook. And he burned her face. I mean... (laughs) I have heard you make some really crazy rational... (laughs) but are you going to say but this one's brilliant i'm an i'm like painting on the precipice of falling into the river of lost souls and all you can do is laugh and i want to know the answer (laughs) yeah i mean daniel there's rationalization and then there's what you just said (laughs) 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 do you know that meme with the the cat the cheeseburger like i can't has cheeseburger it's like the the demons are like i can't has book (laughs) 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 where themes are gonna start popping up it's gonna be just the the lost soul face it's gonna be like i can has storybrook and i can has Stubble sandwich. Someone who's really good with Photoshop or something. Make me a a meme. Make me a meme and send it to me. Make me a meme. (laughs) Community, make me a meme. But what the show is kind of saying that these lost souls, even nice little old ladies like Auntie M, apparently they turn into pure rage demons because they just seem to be full of anger and wrath. And the way Hades kind of described it was, you're just a shell of your former self. And I have a very whole time, hard time imagining that little old Auntie M became one of these things. Well, we saw two of them. 
So maybe these two have a vindictive side. They should not have appeared in the show. They were like an 11th hour panic. I mean, not only did it happen, but the second they burned the non-corporeal entity back into the water, they turned their backs to the water and it happened again. Like, what? I don't understand what this was replacing that they couldn't pull off, but this was not. I can't believe this was the original idea for the script. This whole scene was just wrong. It doesn't make sense. Unless my explanation is true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, okay. (laughs) Because maybe it's, you know, just one other, not the same demon, but just one other one is like, no, you are not taking our book. Now I can see one of them having been Gaston. (laughs) He'd do that. Yeah. So all episode, I've been kind of asking Daniel, did they really save the underworld? (laughs) And apparently there is no way to save the souls in the river. So nice little old Auntie M is just doomed. Yeah. Everybody else in there is doomed. Yeah, Mila, who is one of my least favorite Once Upon a Time characters ever. And I actually really enjoyed her in the episode Devil's Do. She's doomed. They apparently don't care, question mark, about the souls in the river. So, did they really save the underworld, Daniel? (laughs) (sighs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Worse, are we possibly not done with the underworld? Mm, Well, I think we are. The show doesn't revisit land like that. Yeah. But the book can apparently transfer pages across realms. That's new. As of this same episode, (laughs) yes. How? Which makes me wonder, were those pages always in Henry's storybook? They can't have been or that child needed to work on retention. Because he should have known that story. Right. Because Henry has read that book many, many times since Mary Margaret gave it to him. Mm Mm-hmm. To give him hope. He would have known instantly, oh, well, there's this thing called the Olympian crystal, and it can kill gods. We should probably find that. And he wouldn't have spent all arc trying to recreate the story, which went nowhere. Henry could be hashtag higher the nerd. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And speaking of the pages of the book, we got to see a little bit more here when Hook put them into the book. And, of course, the golden bird was one of those. And one we haven't seen in a while, but is one of their other go-to stories that they've used before. Snow White and Rose Red. Oh. It's been a couple years since we've seen that one in the storybook. So this transfers across time. And as Emma is searching pages in the book uh, up on the upper side, she she gets the storybook. And that scene (laughs) she sees is from snowdrifts so it's nice that they go back to that there's a picture of emma and hook inside the book is this the first time we've seen the book open itself uh in an obvious way yes i know we've seen the pages turned by wind before like in the pilot episode when emma crashed into the sign and the storybook was there i remember our co-host back then, Dan Flynn, was really excited about seeing flying monkeys in the book <laughs> uh, because that was one of the pictures we got to see. But this seemed a little bit more of a stretch to me to see the book turn its own pages. Maybe about as much of a stretch, though, as page 23 appearing in Robin's backpack 
back in season four, because we never got an explanation for that either. It was just this kind of entity or something, fate, divine force that left these pages inside Robin's knapsack. And so the book opening to the right page at the right moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plot convenience. But it it doesn't bother me as much as some other stuff in the episode. Yeah. At least it was not inconsistent entirely, although it was somewhat inconsistent. But at least the book wasn't an entirely new thing, but that behavior was. So with this newfound knowledge, uh, a lot of stuff then starts going down at the town hall. Newfound knowledge both for Emma as well as for us as the viewers, sort of. And the Olympian crystal, this is the dead is dead device because there, as Haiti said, it will end you. No underworld, no moving on. There is nothing. No one's coming back from this. It sounds like even the gods can't bring you back from this. Which is super harsh and super scary and kind of mean to use it on Robin or anybody else. Actually let it happen in the story. And the only thing I can think of is that knowing how the episode was about to end, people would suddenly say, well, can't they contact Zeus somehow and say, hey, Robin helped defeat Hades too. Can't you give him back? Oh, yeah. And we've received some feedback on that. I think the problem there is Robin is completely no more. and obliterated. Well, I know that's the problem, but they had to create that problem because if they had not... That's what everybody would have said. Right. Right. They would have said, well, just go to the underworld because now Hades isn't there. It's just Cruella and the Blind Witch. You can take them on. Go rescue Robin Hood because it's not fair that you spend an entire arc rescuing one guy, but Mm -hmm. you won't spend an episode or two rescuing another. But it's really even easier than that because going to the underworld to get Hook didn't help anyway. But Zeus was able to just be like, oh, yeah, here you go. So all they'd have to do is, you know, come up with some magical how-to on how to contact Zeus. And, you know, you'd get some mushrooms and some mirrors and, like, some dirt and stuff and throw it in a well and you'd be good. you talk to Zeus and you'd be like, hey, can we, can we have Robin back? He's like, yeah, totally helped kill that awful brother of mine and I love those people, so here you go. It's unnecessarily cruel this device and what they did to Robin. I mean, if they want to kill Robin for whatever reason, either because they are planning on doing something with Regina or they need to further wicked sisters and they feel like Robin is kind of a hindrance there. Okay. It's your story. I'll, I'll allow you to tell this, you know, cause it's yours, but they didn't just kill him. They obliterated him. He doesn't get to move on. He's a hero. Now, granted, Robin is not the most dynamic character on our screen. He's been really underdeveloped. He is kind of just there in most scenes. He doesn't get to do a whole lot. Anything that was ever teased about him before never came to fruition. But, you know, he's a good father. He's a hero. He's never killed anyone. He's never really done anything, quote unquote, bad that we associate with the more prominent villains in this show. And he doesn't get to move on. He doesn't get to go to the land of shiny, fluffy clouds. He's literally obliterated. Here's something else to remember, though, in the story is that look at the beginning of season five. Robin was actually supposed to die. At least he was 
fatally wounded, but Emma used her dark magic to save him. And that's when the fury came. They did the whole Care Bears there and um, Guardians of the Galaxy thing to push back the fury. But it seemed like it could only be a matter of time until the fury comes again to claim Robin's soul. So in a sense, they brought a death that was already supposed to be coming, but that we are supposed to have probably forgotten about. But yeah, you're right. The way that they do this, it's kind of right there next to killing Neil. So yeah, the fury, the fury was supposed to take him to the underworld, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But not everybody goes to the underworld underworld because they might not have unfinished business. Does what does the fury do in that case? Nothing. (laughs) And now, yeah, the fury could still come because there's no soul to take to the underworld or anywhere else. Yeah. How is there not a price of magic that needs to be paid here? Unless the Fury just gets an email. <laughs> <laughs> but this okay, death that one off. this death had nothing to do with the Fury or with the price of magic. It's literally just the villain of the arc taking vengeance on someone that he thinks is standing in his way. And Robin literally jumps in front of that. Mm-hmm. As for was this foreshadowed back in episode 502, the price? Maybe. However, in the days since Robin Hood's death on Sunday... Sean McGuire has given several, several exit interviews. And one thing that he has been very, very adamant about was that Adam and Eddie did not tell him Robin was going to die until January, after they had already filmed at least episode 512, maybe 513. If they had said, you know, if they'd been foreshadowing Robin's death since the beginning of season five, I kind of think they probably would have told him because he moved his wife and son up to Vancouver to be there because he thought he had a full-time job. And that's something that he says in the interviews. I'm not putting words into his mouth. It's something he says. Hmm. So like I said, if you're going to kill Robin because of something you want to do later on, okay, it's your story. But the way they did this was just so unnecessarily cruel. And I think it's because of lessons they've learned in the past, like when they killed Graham or when they killed Neil And they constantly get hounded. Well, are we going to see them again? You know, is dead really dead? Because you keep bringing back X, Y, and Z. So why can't we bring back these guys? And this was a way to get them out of that. Yeah. And I know a lot of people don't like this. Maybe there were other contractual things. Because that's the thing. Near the end of a season, that's when you're going to see someone die, move, yeah, leave the show but, or something oh, like that. Sure. That's all fine. Come up with some other stupid reason that yes. he had to move on and they yeah. couldn't get him back. Or Zeus just says, no, it's his time. Like, <laughs> let I don't Rob- know. Let Robin say, you know, pull a Neil. We saw Neil in the beginning of this arc that he's moved on because he had no unfinished business. And I question that, but at least they said it. He has no unfinished business. So he got to move on. And you know what? He'll see Emma and Henry and Rumpel in the afterlife. Regina, Roland, Marion, baby pistachio. They never get to see him again. There's no heaven here for Robin. Yeah. I'm sure some people are probably saying it was a pointless death. Tasha Yar. I mean, Robin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One of the things we learn about the crystal, though, and I think this is a hint at why Rumpel wants it, is Hades said the power in the crystal can be used to create a new kingdom. 
I think that's what Rumpel wants now that he's calling Storybrooke his kingdom. He wants to use um, the power to create some kind of new kingdom. Sands of Avalon much? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But in this case, instead of it all being fake, it could be real. Well. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Or maybe there's something real. else. Maybe he wants to open some kind of portal so an alien species can come and invade Boston. <laughs> but please, please tell me that whatever he has planned all happens in the next two hours. It probably will. Because if we spend all of the next story arc talking about Rumpel doing this and doing that and taking babies and doing stuff to create this new kingdom, and then it ends up being like a miniature kingdom in a bottle that he can shrink everyone and put them into <laughs> author, <clears throat> then I, you know, I don't know what to do with that except predict it and then laugh. Because if he's going, if he, if we spend a whole story arc with him saying he's going to create a new kingdom, I know that it's not going to look anything like anything anyone imagined. But if it all happens in the next two hours, that could actually be a pretty interesting story. Mm-hmm. And I know there are a lot of correlations between Zadies and Rumbell and also between Hades. And there Rumble. definitely are. Yeah, definitely. And I was, I was happy that they brought it back up saying Regina telling Zelina that he wants it all. He won't give up anything for you. That's exactly where Rumpel is right now with Belle. Yeah. Minus a working true love's kiss. What do you think of Zelina in this, everything that's happening here at the town hall? Selena was kind of one of the highlights of the episode, especially at this part. She killed that. <laughs> Not killed that guy, but she <laughs> killed that scene. <laughs> so good. And does this make her a hero? Like an actual bona fide hero. She kills the bad guy. She comforts her sister. She was on their side to begin with until Hades lied to her. We got some interesting feedback from Amdele sort of about Zelina and this entire scene. And she writes, I am starting to think that Hades was not included to be a real character in the series, but as a catalyst for Zelina to redeem herself and turn to the side of light. His death is basically done as a way for her to show that she is willing to forsake what could be her own happiness to do what is right and save Regina in the process. Before this episode, she showed that she believes in the redeeming power of love, which is a huge step for her. While she has been claiming all season that baby Robin will be someone who can love her, Zelina has had less focus on her loving in return, making it a selfish claim on her end. By showing what she is willing to do in the name of loving Hades has shown her development as a character. Was this a waste of what could have been done with the Lord of the Underworld as a character? Yes, it was, but an interesting turn of events at least. Hmm. Which is interesting because, you know, Robin isn't the only one who dies in this scene. Yeah. Hades dies. And for being the Lord of the Underworld, for being a god, and as much as I liked him, and I really, really liked Hades <laughs> and Greg German, his story in the end kind of feels incredibly lackluster. And, like, there's just so much more they could and should have done. And this is where I think having only 11 episodes an arc is getting us into trouble. Because he kind of deserved maybe an entire season to himself to really flesh him out, to really show that he's a threat. Yeah. But if it's all about Zelina, maybe it's okay that he didn't get a flashback or any kind of interaction with his brother or father 
or really any kind of internal motivation through, you know, the flashbacks or interactions with other beings and, and creatures and such. That's right. He is the only major character that we've never seen flashbacks and that kind of character development. Interesting. You know, it's funny because this whole story arc has been surprisingly fun to watch despite its problems and despite what I thought going into it. And yet it does seem as though... That maybe it's a letdown at the end. Yeah. uh, But at the same time, not even just that, it's almost like, I don't know if I would blame the short arcs if they would just not tie things off so completely. Your villain does not have to die in episode 9 or 10 of every arc so that you can then go on to your (laughs) two-hour finale that has nothing to do with anything we just watched. People can go away. They can come back. I mean, this show does seem to keep its options open. They could go away and maybe come back, maybe not. But at least, you know, and I, I like resolution as well, but it, the, the scene in the office felt quite a bit like the end of the Ice Queen, if nothing else. Mm. Like we're in a room, people are in a standoff, people are yelling and emoting and doing whatever they do. And then in a burst of something, someone dies and maybe it's the same person that has a sudden transformation and change of heart and becomes good. Maybe it's not. You know, yeah. Ingrid was both of those things. Mm-hmm. She died and changed in this scene. Selena changed and Hades died. I don't know. It's It doesn't have to crescendo quite that way every time. Yes, a cohesive story arc, but then there could be threads. Um, really much like last year, there, the, the author side of things, there were threads of that in the previous arc mm-hmm. as well. I thought that was woven pretty well. And then some of the things that were established there are continuing on. Mm-hmm. Things with Henry as the author, even if I don't necessarily quite understand what they're trying to do with it. <laughs> and it has occurred to me that maybe, maybe, maybe something will still happen with that. That maybe it's all a ruse. That maybe Robin's not gone. <laughs> but... I. I'm, he's gone. Yeah. He's gone. And if they bring him back, that's, I mean, they've already broken the rule, dead is dead. But if they bring him back, then it's like the end is not the end. And it it would break it down so much. But I think here's the, here's the big question. Where does Regina go from here? Because Robin was her soulmate. <sighs> mm-hmm. And the, one of the biggest complaints I hear about season two is that people got really sick of Regina's waffling Mm. where one week she was with the heroes and the next week she wasn't Cora shows up and she's back on the evil train, but then, Oh, suddenly she made a mistake. Oh, but then she wants to, you know, use the fail safe to destroy Storybrooke. I, mm, I don't want to see her go back full on evil queen. Oh, I don't think she will. Uh, But she, she's got to go somewhere from here. If they did this whole thing about setting up Robin as her soulmate yeah. and yeah. the one she was destined to be with, now he's gone. So it feels like she they can't just pair her up with the next handsome guy that comes onto the show. That would seem to be an insult to everything that's come before this. I mean, the relationship with Daniel and her loss of Daniel is what 
caused her to want to cast the curse and mm-hmm. that revengeful, revengeful relationship with Snow White. And then hear everything with Robin. Well, yeah. She'll probably raise Roland. Yeah. It's jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah. Can we talk about Hook's return? Yeah. So my initial reaction to that, I mean, that just, that was not cool at all to me. That makes me, that made me kind of feel sick. Because once again, just like we've seen before, Regina is grieving over events that were set in motion largely by Emma. And Emma's got Hook again anyway. That, besides having been seen before, is, I mean, I would think cause for Regina to at least have some trouble with that situation. Even though I also believe that the the closer association of events strung together... It, the blame goes to Regina. And ultimately, obviously, as they've already established that they've learned, it's the person who does the bad thing who is responsible. Obviously. But still, to have gone through this whole thing, to to think that they would have never even met Hades, that he never would have gotten out if Emma hadn't traipsed them all down to the underworld. And she's got Hook in the end anyway. And Regina, once again, has lost Robin. It just... Uh, we won't read it all, but I know we've gotten a lot of feedback on this and a lot of posts in the forums about people really feeling like this this just wasn't fair, wasn't balanced, wasn't just, anything like that. Because on the merits of what Hook did, even just look at Hook's actions. Did he deserve for Zeus to bring Hook back? Not really, because Hook wasn't that instrumental. And and this is summarizing a bunch of feedback that we've gotten from uh, Nordica, from the Dark One Deary, from uh, from several others as well. Yeah. So at the beginning of this podcast, several, several scenes ago, I asked everyone to keep in mind something Hook says, which is that a good deed washes out a bad one. And I I guess since we're talking about Hook's return now, I'll, I'll bring this back around. So I am not going to deny that Hook did a good thing by going on this quest and trying to get the book and trying to help Emma and her family. He did. It was noble and, you know what, it was sacrificial and it was heroic in a lot of ways. And I commend Hook for that. I don't know that this one action of putting pages in a book, I don't know that it's enough for Zeus (laughs) to say, you know what, you deserve a second chance at life. Not only a second chance at life, but a new body to because... Obviously, his former body's in a grave still, yes? Right, and can they go look at it? Because that's super creepy. Uh, But interestingly, he returns in the same clothing he was wearing when he died. Right, Ah. but not with his Excalibur (laughs) wound or anything. But all of this is beside the point. Zeus, who is apparently the most powerful deity in the world, that he has control over life and death, has decided that because Hook played a, you know, maybe minor to major minor (laughs) role in taking down his brother, he gets to go back to life. And he gets to go back to life right at the exact moment that everyone is gathered around Robin's fresh grave, which is a whole other issue. But did this one deed really override everything he's done? And again, I'm not denying that the one deed is good. I'm saying that the other deeds, the misdeeds, the things that I would put in his bad column include a lot of murder mm-hmm. and uh, now if we can if we can take parts of this episode as unsupervised <laughs> th- they spent the rest of 
the season telling us that people's moving on was based on where they ended up, not what else they'd done. Right. And then in this episode, they drag that whole scale thing out. <laughs> and I'm just like, with what you're going to do, why would you even say that? Well, then again, Hook is not necessarily the expert of right. underworld dynamics. Right. I mean, he's the only the only one of the heroes who was actually dead, and he was around the whole time, so you'd think he could have picked up on it. But, I mean, he's also not that smart, so maybe not. But, that was just pure hook hating for fun, just because I used to really love doing that. I said this in the <laughs> initial reactions. If anyone can bring someone back from the dead, I'm okay with it being a deity. <laughs> sure, that can break all the rules of dead is dead. After all, <laughs> I believe that... God did bring someone back from the dead multiple times uh, recorded in the Bible. So that is something that I actually do literally believe is possible. So it's, but here in the show, I think also looking at their rules saying dead is dead. And then we discover that's not really the case, but it being (laughs) Zeus to, to actually have that power, but it's like a power that he doesn't use. Yeah. I have no problems with a deity bringing someone back to life on this show. Fine. That is perfectly fine. I, you know, that's fine. I have a problem with the incredible selectiveness <laughs> of him bringing somebody back to life. He, and you know what? He can bring back Hook. Sure, bring back Hook. But how about all the heroes that have died? Mm-hmm. How about all the innocent children that have died? Yeah, it would almost make more sense if Hook had died in the first place as a direct result of something that Hades did. And so Zeus would, in a sense, be cleaning up after his brother. Well, I think Zeus's motivation is kind of a little bit selfish here, even, because he's bringing Hook back to life because Hook helped defeat Hades. Right. Mm -hmm. Not because Hook did good things or good deeds or because (laughs) Hook's good deeds outweigh his bad or anything like that. It's because Hook helped Hades. (laughs) Which, as Gio is pointing out in the chat room... If Zeus could do that, why did he need Hook to help deal with Hades in the first place? I know. <laughs> and maybe, maybe because Hades had that crystal and that prevented that Zeus from broken doing anything. crystal that didn't work until he repaired it slash put a handle on the two pieces. <laughs> yeah. But between Robin's death and Hook's resurrection, what kind of moral message do we think this show is trying to say? And I... I understand that morality is completely subjective. This is something I argue constantly, and I'm not trying to impose my own morals or how I feel about the show on anybody. But for a show that goes around and says, we're about hope, we're about love, second chances, Mm -hmm. family, again, bring back Hook. That is absolutely fine with me. But the fact that there's no magical MacGuffin out there that will bring back Robin Hood, a man who has two children, one of who is now an orphan, who has a soulmate in Regina, who is, you know, yeah, a boring character, but a good guy. Right. What kind of message is it? He couldn't have just continued to gallivant around the woods or be a stay-at-home dad and Regina would just mention him once in a while? Right. If you need to get rid of the actual character because you don't know how to write for him, or maybe you find him problematic, we have forgotten Character Island for a reason. Regina yeah, just constantly says... <laughs> Robin's at home with baby pistachio and Roland. We're going to go take care of this villain without him. Great. Fine. I'm okay with that. They literally obliterated him. A lot of this conversation feels like similar conversations we had to when they killed Neil. 
Neil, yeah. the icon of hope. Except I'm not reason. a crying, devastated mess at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> others, others are, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, each time I rewatch this episode, I, I still got to admit, I still teared up a little bit each time watching this episode because a lot of it, yeah, as much as there are plot holes and problems and stuff like that, it was really a beautiful episode and a painful episode and yeah. all the feels of the episode. The funeral was very well done. Yeah. I want to go back and just listen to the score because mm. I know I caught a little bit of it. I was very distracted by you know, what's happening on the screen, which you're supposed to be. But uh, uh, Mark Isham has been using Periscope recently to yes. live stream some of the scoring sessions for these late episodes. And the soundtrack is really good. Mark Eichel is such an amazing guy. He's really cool doing stuff like that. Yeah. Big, big props to Mark Eichel. The score when um, Robin dies and then here at the funeral is absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And and the little details with the funeral, like the arrows with the roses on them. Yeah, that was beautiful. That was a nice touch. So there's one more little thing here at this funeral that we haven't brought up. And that's that the baby now has a name. Yeah, baby Robin. Which, <laughs> the, the second we figured out Robin was dying, like the very next like episode or so after we figured out that Robin was dying through spoilers, Robin gave his whole, I'm not going to name the baby until I know her speech. And everybody went, oh, they're naming uh, the baby Robin. Because that's the thing to do. You name your baby after someone who just recently died. So who's got to die? Yes. For, for Belle. Uh-huh. For baby. <gasps> you guys, that's baby Rumple. <laughs> or baby Mo. <laughs> Gosh. No. Or or baby Roland, because I think they're going to like leave Belle in stasis for years, and Roland's going to grow up and be this confused orphan villain thing, and then he's going to be redeemed, and then he's going to die, and then they're going to name the baby Roland. <laughs> Let's talk about Rumple. <laughs> so, because that's a happy place too. <laughs> this is the, tr- the the teaser that is leading up into the two episode finale. So, I really think it's going to focus on this thing, and you'll hear those spoilers in a moment about that finale, and a little bit even about season six. But think about this: Rumple now has the combined power of all the dark ones. He has, supposedly, I'm not sure if they've forgotten this, he has a pure white heart or had at one point. He's a hero. And nope. he now has the raw power of the Olympian crystal. Well, a piece of it anyway. Yeah. yeah. And he's saying, this is my kingdom. Right. So what else can this crystal possibly do? <laughs> yeah. Now, see, do we love or hate the fact that they popped out the crystal and instantly it has multiple uses. I think I like that slightly better than if they'd used it for the one thing and then used it for the other thing. I'm okay with it having different uses. I think it does make sense for it to be multi-purpose because it is an iconic item of the gods, not only a weapon, but a source of power, kind of like a wand, that mm. the wand isn't only a weapon. It can be used as a weapon. It can also be used to channel magic for good things or to do whatever. I think that's the thing with the Olympian crystal is that it has a lot of raw power. They did say raw power. What does raw power mean? Well, for one thing, like uncooked or unprocessed, but I think it also means... Dangerous if consumed. (laughs) Yeah. I think it also means can be wielded in any direction. It's not like all good magic or all dark magic. It's raw 
magic, raw power. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's already got the mechanical problem of Hades very, very much needed to have the ability to repair it, which retconishly means mm-hmm. this is why he never used it in the underworld because yeah. he didn't have the power to repair it and it needed to be repaired in order to be used. But Rumpel only needs a piece of it for whatever reason. Okay. I don't know why. Maybe he's going to build that thing from the old Superman movies. And he's going to go there. And the dark ones are going to talk to him. His fortress of solitude. Yeah. I'm not quite sure if I agree with you about this raw power of magic thing. But it's largely because I don't know that the show has set up a definitive definition of how magic works in the show. Because it's always oh, kind clearly of clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was being nice. <laughs> There's a lot of feedback, great feedback that we got in relation to this episode, and because we've already been talking about this for so long, we haven't been able to incorporate all of it. So please go to the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash two fifty. And it's very easy to recognize the feedback because they're colored differently and they're in the nice little quotation boxes there so go there read some of the great feedback read some of the forum discussions participate in those comment on the show notes for this episode at oncepodcast.com slash 250 with your own thoughts and theories and you can continue the conversation about this episode but for our podcast this does finally wrap up our discussion of this episode And we are really looking forward to the upcoming two-hour finale event, and we hope to have your feedback and theories on that, too. Uh, We probably, I'm guessing here, we probably won't have as much to theorize about in that full discussion episode. So our full discussion episode may be more of some of our top moments and top thoughts from the episode, not so much theorizing. So if you want to send us your feedback about your top moments, your favorite things, least favorite things, whatever favorite parts of the episode, anything like that, go ahead and send us that. And no doubt there will still be some theory to come from that as well. But please go to the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 250 to get our contact information and to share this episode out with your friends. Thanks to Marie Pantret from the United States who left a kind review for us in iTunes. And they said, witty Educational Squid Inc. I started listening to this podcast at the beginning of season five, and I am currently watching the series from start to finish for the third time. Now that I know about the Once podcast, I've been listening to old episodes. It's fun to hear y'all's predictions and how it turned out. (laughs) And John Buchanan in the iTunes USA store said, This podcast is a labor of love. Daniel, Jeremy, Aaron, Jacqueline, Hunter, and Jenny pour their heart into the show and this podcast. It's well produced. (laughs) He would know because he produces it. (laughs) And is a fantastic podcast about the TV show Once Upon a Time. Thank you very much for the positive reviews. We really appreciate those. We are still also receiving negative reviews reviews because of my statement from a couple episodes ago and uh, that'll happen but i do appreciate the honesty even though i don't like what the people said and there's some name calling and some other stuff in the negative reviews i appreciate that people took the time to be honest and write something there so if you'd like to write a review for the podcast an honest review is what we're asking for we have the links to our itunes listing for the podcast over at oncepodcast.com slash 250 Please remember, the upcoming finale starts an hour earlier 
So get your DVR set, get together. Hey, send us your photos if you have any kind of once upon a time season finale party or make some fun food for a finale, even if it's just you or you dress up or anything fun like that. Tweet us your photos at Once Podcast or you can email them to us. Our contact information is on the website, oncepodcast.com slash 250. But please do connect with us on Twitter at Once Podcast. And I'm Daniel J. Lewis on Twitter at The Ramen Noodle. I'm Jeremy Laughlin on Twitter at Fleegon. That's P-H-L-E-G-O-N. I'm Jacqueline, and you can follow me on Twitter at punk underscore bunny underscore 87. This podcast would not be possible without our great team of volunteers making the episodes possible episode after episode. So special thanks to Corbin for sorting our feedback, Jack for writing our show notes, John Buchanan for editing our episodes, and Zeus have mercy on him for editing Whoa. this episode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's odd. Also, thanks to Hunter Hathaway and Jacqueline for providing our spoilers. You'll hear from Jacqueline doing the spoiler solo in a moment. Thanks also to Jacqueline and Matthew Paul for moderating the forums, Keb for masterminding our timeline, Jenny for managing our Patreon bonuses for our heroes, and to my fellow co-hosts, Jeremy, Aaron, Hunter, and Jacqueline for hosting this podcast, especially a really long one like this <laughs> with me. And we have great conversations because of that. And until next time... And considering how long of a podcast episode this was for not even the finale or the pilot or the premiere of a season, I think Snow said it best. I hope we never again have a day like today. (laughs) And thanks for listening. Once Podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Big thanks to our heroes for making this very long episode of Once Podcast possible. We could not do it without you. So thank you very much for your support. If you would like to be a hero and keep the podcast going and get access to cool things like our fun bloopers and more, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash hero. And thank you for your support. Hi, Oncers. I'm Jacqueline, and it's spoiler time for Once Podcast. Sadly, Hunter could not join me tonight. Our schedules just failed to line up properly, so I am flying solo. But not to worry, I've got everything you need for Season 5 finale and beyond. Just as a reminder, this two-part finale begins at 7 p.m., not 8, as usual. So if you record the show, don't forget to adjust your DVRs. First up in the two-hour finale, we have Episode 522, Only You. In the first hour of the special two-hour season finale, Regina reels from the death of Robin Hood, and everyone tries to give her room to grieve. But when the heroes discover gold has stolen Hades' Olympian crystal and tethered all of Storybrooke's magic to it, they set out to stop him. Henry decides he no longer can stand all the pain magic has caused his family, so he goes rogue, with Violet in tow, to destroy magic once and for all. Meanwhile, Zelina, Snow, David, and Hook attempt to open a portal that will return Merida and the other Storybrooke guests to their homes. But things go awry and the group winds up in a deranged new world. Only You is written by David H. Goodman and Andrew Chambliss and was directed by Romeo Tyrone. So it sounds like (laughs) we've got a lot going on. We know that we end up in New York City for this episode and for more of the finale. It kind of sounds like there's not a whole lot actually happening in Storybrooke. But we do have guest stars for this episode quite a few, actually. 
All of the dwarves are returning, as is Beverly Elliott as Granny and Amy Manson as Merida. We also have Robin Hood's gang, which includes Raphael Alejandro as Roland, Michael P. Northey as Friar Tuck, Jason Burkhardt as Little John. We also have Olivia Steele Falconer returning to us as Violet. We haven't seen her all arc. We saw her last during the Camelot stuff. And then we have a bunch of new people. We have Hank Harris as the groundsman and Sam Whitweir as the warden. And of course, the current theory is that these two are Jekyll and Hyde. We also have Arnold Pinnock as the orderly, Candace Churchill as the librarian, and Chris Olson as the toll operator. Up next in the two-hour finale, we have episode 523, An Untold Story. In the second hour, with the possibility of magic being destroyed and the fate of Storybrooke hanging in the balance, it's a race for Emma and Regina to track down Henry before Gold can find him first. Regina continues to struggle with her frustrations over her former evil self, and elsewhere, Snow and David, Hook, and Zelina are imprisoned and must contend with two very disturbed individuals that may give Gold a run for his money. An Untold Story is written by Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz, and it did not list a director, so I'm going to assume that it's probably Romeo Tyrone, but finales are usually directed by one of our long-standing directors, so it's either Tyrone or possibly Ralph Hemlicker. We have a few guest stars in An Untold Story. Returning to us, Beverly Elliott as Granny. Olivia Still Falconer is still around as Violet. We also have several people from the first half of this two-hour finale, such as Hank Harris as the groundsman, Sam Whitweir as the warden, Arnold Pinnock as the orderly, and then we have a couple new folks and someone returning that I honestly never expected we'd ever see again. Shannon Hearn as the frontiersman and Nikolai Witchell as the server. And returning to us for the first time since season two, see Ma as the dragon. Now, if you don't remember who the dragon is, we last saw him in episode 218, Selfless, Brave, and True. We met him in a flashback in Hong Kong with Tamara. She tased him with that magical taser she was carrying around. But before she did, the dragon said, you haven't met the real me. And speculation in the fandom was always that he might be so magical it would be impossible to kill him. We do know that they recreated Chinatown in New York City. So it looks like that's where we're going to meet the dragon. Somehow he got from Hong Kong to New York City and has apparently been hanging out there for a while. And it does seem like he's going to help the Storybrooke gang especially Emma and Regina, who find themselves in New York trying to track down Henry. We got one promo for this episode, for both 522 and 23. It clearly opens at Robin's wake. You see people toasting to a picture of Robin Hood. You then hear Snow coming over to Regina and saying, you don't have to go through this alone. And I think the big question on everyone's mind in Storybrooke is, will the evil queen be coming back? So you're going to see flashes of things that are happening in Storybrooke and then things that are happening outside of Storybrooke. So we get to see our first flash of the dragon. And then we see everyone, including Regina, Emma, Violet, Henry, and the dragon looking down at something. I think they're standing over a table and they're looking down at whatever's on the table. We flash back to Storybrooke and hear Rumple telling Regina that deep down the evil queen is who you are. We then flash back to New York City where Henry is blasting a room with a magic pulse while Regina and Emma kind of look on. This is followed by Emma saying, what have you done? And Henry very almost proudly says, I destroyed magic. 
We then switch to where we'll be going for season six, which is this mental hospital arc. And we see a big house on a hill, which is probably the mental hospital itself. And we see kind of down in the bottom, the people who got transported there, who are Zelina, Hook, Snow, and Charming. There are then a couple little flashes of individual characters, one of whom is Rumpel, and he's levitating a shard of the Olympian crystal while it glows. So the two-hour finale is sure to be packed full of stuff. Obviously, Hades is gone, and we are now looking towards season six. We only got one set of promotional pictures for both 22 and 23. A ton of them are of Emma and Regina in the New York City apartment, which formerly belonged to Neil. And that's where Robin and who he thought was Marion were living. Of course, Marion turned out to be Zelina. But that's where they are in a lot of these photos. Emma's at a computer. They're trying to track down Henry, I believe. Uh, Regina finds a note addressed to her, and it looks like it's from Robin Hood. There's also kind of a funny shot. She's holding a book about Robin Hood. So I think Robin probably went out and bought a book to see how this world views him and what his story is. We also have quite a number of photos of this new world that we're going to be exploring. We see one with Zelina. She's holding what looks like a broken wand. And then Zelina, Hook, Snow, and Charming are in the new land, and they look like they're exploring a little bit. It does look very pretty, but it's probably not a happy place because the other photos show all of those people being locked up in what looks like a hospital room, and it doesn't look like it's a very happy hospital room. There is also one picture of the orderly of the mental hospital. He's wearing all white, and he has a very big set of keys. We got a few script teases from these episodes. Uh, The first one is Snow, and unfortunately, I'm going to have to do this without Hunter. I don't have someone to play off of, so it is just me this week for these. The first one is Snow, and she approaches Regina, and she says, Regina, I know there isn't anything we can say, but we want you to know you don't have to go through this alone. And that is from the promo that we also saw. The second script tease is Emma and Regina. Emma says, get in the bug, and Regina says, why? Where's he headed? And this is clearly about Henry. So Emma figures out that Henry is headed to New York City. I don't know how. And they get in the bug for a little adventure to go find their son. We have actually already gotten a sneak peek. Lana Perea was on Michael and Kelly this morning, and a little bit of a clip aired. So it's our very first sneak peek. It is Emma and Regina in the apartment in New York City. It opens with Emma and Regina having a conversation about Regina doing good. And Emma says, you hate doing good. And then this kind of becomes Regina's monologue. And she says, yes, because it's complicated. She goes on to explain that she is constantly at war with her instincts. And then this is a direct quote, like with Hook. My first impulse was to rip his throat out because it's not fair that he survives and Robin doesn't. But I didn't rip out Hook's throat because now I know that's wrong. So obviously, this is something the fandom has been wondering if Regina would know that Hook came back and would react strongly to that um, because she obviously just lost the love of her life while Emma got her boyfriend back. And Emma doesn't really have a whole lot to say in this scene. She's kind of just sitting and listening and taking what Regina says to heart. 
And, you know, the fandom has just speculated so much about how Regina would react knowing that Emma's boyfriend came back from the dead, whereas hers got obliterated. And I really think these episodes are going to be dealing with that conflict. That is all I have for you on the season finale. Now, I do have a lot of other things that need to be talked about. Sean McGuire, who plays Robin Hood, gave quite a number of exit interviews. Now, every news magazine out there has them, so I'm not going to be talking about these too much. But just to kind of hit some bullet points here, Sean has stated that he won't be returning. He is looking for new projects. As an actor, he doesn't like to come back after he's gone off the show because that character is now done and he gets to move on to other things. So if you were hoping for any kind of miraculous resurrection, it's not going to happen. This isn't to say that we might never see him again. He did say never say never. So in a flashback, it's possible we might see Robin Hood again. But Sean McGuire is definitely off the show. Robin Hood is definitely dead. There will be no coming back from this. Sean wasn't told that his character was going to die until January. And by that point, they had at least shot, according to my notes, episode 512, maybe episode 513, Labor of Love. So it kind of seems like maybe Adam and Eddie made the decision rather late in the season and then let Sean know. But Sean wants it to be clear that as an actor, he feels it's his job to serve the writing and wants it to be clear that it wasn't that there was anything going on behind the scenes or that he was unhappy because as an actor, he doesn't contribute to the storylines. He simply serves the writing. The only people who are writing the show are Adam and Eddie and then the rest of the writers. We also got a final hot seat, which is their very famous yes, no, or can't say. There wasn't a whole lot, but there were a few things that I think are worth mentioning. They would like us to meet Rumpel's mother at some point. If you remember back in season 5A, they had originally teased Rumpel's mother, but it turned out to be Merida. The casting call lied so that no one would guess that it was Merida. They said that they already have an episode in the works to address Lily and who her father is from season four. Um, Eddie did say that, you know, they hear the fans. They know that the fans think that a lot of storylines have been dropped. And so they are trying to put together an episode that answers a lot of those unanswered questions. For those of you who were wondering if Regina was going to face more of her victims in the underworld, because obviously between her and Rumpel, they've killed quite a number of people. And Eddie says, no, for us, we liked the idea that she had to get closure with her family. We loved having the victims that were there go up, I guess, to the better place. A bunch of villagers we've never met before we didn't think was as interesting as putting her in an arc with her sister, mom, and dad. So that's why we never saw Regina come face to face with the people she's killed. The same with Rumpel. They can't say if the sleeping curse will have an effect on Belle's baby. And they also can't say if Belle is pregnant by the end of the season. I believe she probably is, though. Emily went on maternity leave right around this point when they were filming. I don't think Belle's going to be a big presence in the season finale. I, I don't think Rumpel's going to wake her or that probably we will even see her. But she will be back for season six. So that story of Rumpel and Belle will pick up next year. They also said there will be no engagement this season, which if you've been listening to the spoilers all year is kind of surprising. 
We did have those pictures of Hook and Emma outside of Granny's. And Emma, of course, has been wearing Hook's ring around her neck, like a giant Chekhov's ring all season. And so a lot of us assumed that they were going to get engaged by the end of the season, but they are not. A lot of people wonder where Ruby and Dorothy are and if we are ever going to see that relationship again. Eddie says, not this season, but that is based on actor availability and scheduling, not a desire to not show them. Apparently, also, Ruby and Dorothy were supposed to be in these last few episodes, the season finale. They wanted to bring them back into the story. But Megan Ori is now a lead on another television show, and so actor availability is now quite tricky. They hope to have them back in season six, though. As for season six, people want to know if it's going to be set in Storybrooke or are there are other realms to visit, and Eddie says that season six will mostly be set in Storybrooke. I will say that the finale is unlike the ones we've done before. It will not be an alternate reality, and next year will not follow the same pattern that we've always done. Just when you think you've got us, we're going to change it again. I don't quite know what that means, <laughs> to be honest. We've had many seasons that are set inside Storybrooke. We know that the characters of Jekyll and Hyde are coming to Storybrooke. We have photos of Hank Harris and then Sam Witwer inside that coming into the town. So it's not like that's really all that different. But who knows? I don't have anything else on season six beyond that, except for just a few little things to mark your calendars on or to be looking forward to for season six. Of course, San Diego Comic-Con is probably the biggest thing where we get spoilers. That will be the week of July 21st through the 24th. I don't know the exact date for Once Upon a Time yet because they just haven't announced, but it will probably be Saturday. They usually go on Saturdays. Outside of that, I don't know anything about Comic-Con yet. Filming, though, will likely begin after July 4th, and it will, of course, be back in Vancouver. So by the time we get to Comic-Con, we will have a, at least a week's worth of filming. And at Comic-Con, we always get a promo and some teasers about the new characters. For season six, obviously, the cast list will be changing because we are now short Sean McGuire, who has left the show. I don't believe they are going to be adding anyone new. Last year, it seemed pretty obvious that they would be adding Sean McGuire because Robin Hood, we thought, was going to be sticking around for quite a while. So it made sense to add him as a series regular. Also, last year, Bex Mater was announced to be joining as a series regular. But I don't think that's going to be the case this year. I, I don't see them adding anyone new. For season six, the theme seems to be science versus magic. And this seems like it's um, a storyline that got dropped back in season two. Once they got the Neverland rights and they had everyone sent off to meet Peter Pan. But the science versus magic debate came up originally with Tamara and Greg and all the experiments they were doing on Regina and the magical taser. If you guys remember all of that, you may have to go back and rewatch some of season two if you've forgotten. This was changed pretty quickly so that the home office turned out to be part of Peter Pan's gang. And then the show very, very quickly in season three killed off both Tamara and Greg. But that story is now coming back with Jekyll and Hyde. There is also a question of where is the new realm? The press release just talks about it as being a twisted realm. Part Some of us are wondering if it's maybe Victorian London, like we saw in Wonderland. There's a very famous hospital that Wonderland had, which was Bethlehem Hospital, also known as Bedlam. 
where a lot of psych patients are kept, and that is where Alice was. So maybe those two lands are connected. It could also just be a brand new realm. It doesn't seem to be in the land without color, because from what we saw in the promo, it has color. So it's not the land of Victor Frankenstein, but it could be just a brand new spanking realm. Like maybe it's fictional hospital London or something. You know how they like to play with these new realms. But that is all I have for you tonight and for quite a while because the next spoiler podcast will probably be a week or so after Comic-Con when Hunter and I will be giving you everything we have over the summer. So all the filming news, all the Comic-Con news, any kind of castings we get. And we, we've got a, a long wait ahead of us, but it seems like season five is going to wrap up in kind of an exciting way. So that is all I have for you for quite a while. You can follow Hunter on Twitter at Traveling Pixie, and you can follow me at Punk underscore Bunny underscore 87. Until next time, Oncers, have a good summer. (laughs) 